0: Hey everyone, it's Jenna, and I am excited to bring you this week an episode from the other podcast I host, which is called Democracy Works. This episode is all about student voting, um, and it's, I think, relevant to anyone who is tasked with developing messaging around voting this fall, and even just how to fit in voting amid all of the other things that we're all dealing with in higher ed this semester. Our guest is Nancy Thomas, who directs the Institute for Higher Education and Democracy at Tufts University. Nancy and I talk about how higher ed can be political without being partisan, so how we can advocate for things like voting and civic engagement, but in a way that doesn't take sides on the political spectrum. Might sound like that's easier said than done, but uh, I, I promise you Nancy offers some great suggestions for how to do that. This episode is very timely, given that we just had national Voter registration day on September 22nd. There is still time to do some get out the vote campaigns and messaging on your campus this fall, and hopefully, this episode will give you some good tools and resources to be able to do that. So, thanks to uh, Logan for letting me put this episode on the higher ed social feed, and we will be back with a new episode soon. <music>
1: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam.
0: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. And this week we are talking all about student voting, and our guest for the conversation is Nancy Thomas, who is the director of the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education, which is part of the Tisch College of Civic Life at Tufts University. So, uh, Nancy and and the Institute more broadly, they're doing a lot of interesting work about both the current issues that universities are facing in terms of how students are going to vote. this fall, given all the uncertainty around COVID and around voting itself, but they also do work on kind of the higher level civic mission of higher education and the ways that those two things intersect, both the kind of short-term concerns and the longer-term mission. So lots to talk about here for sure.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And, and I thought it might be, you know, kind of interesting and revelatory to kind of talk about. What the Penn State campus was like in 2016, in terms of registration, there were so many people around campus with clipboards that as soon as somebody said, excuse me, people would say, I'm registered and keep walking because they knew that's what they were doing. Right. Yeah, you know, we hear a lot
1: in the news these days about college campuses as COVID hotspots and how challenged residential colleges are these days in terms of moving forward in in this environment. And uh, today we're kind of uh, zeroing in on something that you don't really hear as much about. But, you know, as your kind of review of the past demonstrates to me anyway, is really quite different to us and uh, probably worth talking about because uh, we're at a Big Ten campus and a lot of Big Ten campuses are located in very important swing states both here and obviously the Big 10 in the Midwest but also college towns and a lot of other swing states are important as well and we're just seeing i think something very different
2: you're right i mean i think it is worth mentioning right that not just in terms of the Big 10 but universities the reason people go there is because there's 40,000 students here and in Pennsylvania That was half of the margin of victory. So it's important that it's not a surprise that for campaigns, this was a really good place and important place to organize. And so what is going to happen in Pennsylvania when one fourth of the student body isn't here at all and there's not nearly the attention to the campaign not nearly the innumerable opportunities to get yourself registered and figure out how to vote. Now, that's one campus, right? Multiply that by hundreds. Yeah, I mean,
1: there's a real diminishment of activity. I'm sure this is going to register into the candidates in some way as they try to figure out how we're going to mobilize people without having some of our traditional means of mobilizing them.
2: Right. And I think what for Nancy, the other issue or dimension of this that is brought out or heightened by the COVID crisis is just what's the proper role of higher education in terms of fostering this kind of excitement, this kind of motivation for voting for being engaged civically? How do they do that? A- in the context of a pandemic, and Mm -hmm. B, how do they do that in a way that is responsible and effective?
1: You'll remember we spoke to the provost uh, several seasons back. This is a responsibility of a state university, is to Mm -hmm. promote civic activity,
2: to promote democracy, to help to form good democratic citizens. And so for Penn State and other schools like that not to do that, Or to abandon that role is really to turn their back on the reason they exist in the first place.
1: Yeah, so I'm really pleased to have this guest today because I think what she's going to be able to do is to help us think about what the responsibilities of the university are towards democracy in general. But more specifically in the context of this very challenging electoral environment where just voting is going to be very difficult to do.
0: Thanks, Michael. That was a great setup there. Let's go now to my conversation with Nancy Thomas. Nancy Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Works.
3: Jenna, thanks so much for having me.
0: Lots to talk about when it comes to student voting and this fall in particular, and even uh, you know out beyond that, some kind of higher level issues. But I think maybe to set the stage here, it would be helpful to orient our listeners to all the different really types of college students and voting scenarios that there could be. I, I think a lot of us maybe think of the stereotypical student who, who goes away to a four-year university, that type of thing. But there's a whole host of college students' out there going to all types of different institutions. So can you give us a sense of what that landscape looks like and how it relates to how college students cast their ballots?
3: Sure. So what I always like to say is college students are not a monolithic group, and that is the truth. They are not all 18 to 24 year old. They are not all residing on campus in a bucolic setting and in a dormitory. And in fact, about 45% of college students attend community colleges and about, oh, I'd say about 20% more uh, are commuters. And so not all students are having that residential experience. That said, many students still have the option of voting near campus or back near their parents' address. And back in the 1970s, there was a pivotal Supreme Court ruling that said that college students are allowed to vote where they reside, where they attend school. And since then, that has caused some confusion. But the point is is that if students are residing on or near campus, they do have the option of voting there or voting back at their parents' address.
0: So do we know, looking back historically, where students do tend to vote or where they have voted, how many are choosing to vote on campus versus at their parents' address?
3: We didn't know until we launched the study that we run, which is called the National Study of Learning, Voting, and Engagement. It's a uh, basically a very large study of college and university student voting rates. From that, we are at the mercy of the quality of the data that is provided both by the universities to this independent entity, which is called the National Student Clearinghouse, and also the states and the accuracy of the records that the states collect or the local municipalities collect. So It's a little bit tricky to know, but we do know that when given a choice between registering at home and registering from campus, students at this time register more at home. We think that's a problem, and we think it's a problem because we think voting in person yields higher voting rates than voting by mail or absentee ballot. This is a reflection not so much on college students and their uh, willingness or interest in voting. It's more of a reflection on voting conditions in this country, which are unnecessarily confusing for all Americans and discriminatory for many, including residential college students. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And so how do the colleges see this? We've just are now coming to the tail end of the census, and I know across higher ed there was a big push to get college students to complete their census based on their campus address because there are some financial incentives tied to colleges being able to report that they have students living on campus and things like this. But there's not necessarily that same financial incentive there, of course, when it comes to voting. So how do colleges see their role? Do they kind of think that it's incumbent upon them to help students register to vote and actually vote, whether that is on campus or voting absentee or voting by mail back at home?
3: Well, the answer to that question is tied in with the answer to the question, how do colleges and university leaders see the civic mission of their institution? And that, of course, has been in flux, I would say, over the last 25 years, in particular in higher education. I'm happy To get into that, I think that colleges and universities have been very reticent to wade into political waters and have kept the civic mission fairly benign, if not steadfastly neutral. There is a lot of confusion over the difference between political and partisan. And I think the two terms are sometimes used interchangeably on campuses, and they shouldn't be. It is the job of higher education to wade into political and public policy issues and to shed a light on the status of American democracy, and yet it is not the role of campuses to wade into partisan issues. What has happened in public life, not necessarily exclusively on campuses, is that voting itself has become partisan. And it shouldn't be. Voting is nonpartisan. Both parties should care equally about representation and the level of participation of their constituents. So part of the challenge with higher education is just an overarching question. Why are we here? What are we doing? And what is our responsibility to the health and future of democracy. So then when you ask, are they equally committed to voting as they might have been to populating the data for the census? The answer is probably an it depends. There are some campuses that are very dedicated and there are some that are not. And in my view, various forms of participation, including voting, are a means to an end. They are a way to get campuses to educate for democracy. And so one of the things that we're always pushing for is keep voting in context. It is part of the educational mission.
0: You were talking before about the civic mission of higher education and the difference between political and partisan. And and I think for people who work on college campuses, that probably resonates. But for listeners who might not work directly in higher ed. Can you give an example of what that civic mission is and and how this business of political and partisan kind of gets in the way of that? The civic mission in
3: higher education has waxed and waned for as long as for centuries, really. And Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin all wanted a public education system because they knew that a strong democracy would require a participatory and educated citizenry. And so, part of the role of higher education is to ensure the future and health of democracy. That doesn't mean we don't also educate for careers, career preparation, and even the economic security of this country. We do. But it's not an either or. It's a both and. And so one piece of the reticence about educating for democracy has to do with, well, how many hours in a day are there? And how can we do everything? The answer, of course, is to integrate it, to build it into all of the disciplines, to help the sciences understand that they have a high level of public relevance and that students should be learning that public relevance at the same time that they learn, for example, biology or mechanical engineering. All of those things are important both in terms of the nuts and bolts of the discipline, but also its context in a democratic society. Mm -hmm. What happens, though, is that these curricula, they get so full, people say, well, I don't have time or I'm not equipped. I don't know how to have these conversations about the state of democracy. And yet it's not as hard as it sounds. So, for example, at Tufts University, we worked with the engineering department to embed conversations about publicly relevant issues into the first year curriculum. So for example, some of the students had good discussions about self-driving cars and what are the ethics behind that? What are the public implications? Those are important things for those students to be able to Do. Democracy is not just the bailiwick of political science majors or arts and sciences. So, part of it is just a lack of commitment and really understanding how do we do this across disciplines. Another part of the problem, I think, is well, we don't really know what a strong and healthy democracy looks like. We haven't set that point on the horizon toward which we're steering the ship. And We think that that's not as hard as it looks also. For example, I think we could all agree that we want our democracy to be participatory. We want people to participate in it, whether it's community problem solving or service or running for office or voting. So if we can at least agree on participatory as an attribute of a strong democracy, then we can get to this issue of voting or talking about political issues.
0: I want to turn to this issue of voting, particularly this fall. We've been speaking already about, in general, some of the complications around college student voting, and all of that is, of course, amplified even more so now that we're in the midst of a pandemic. You mentioned before about this notion of universities not feeling like they have enough time to really explore these issues, and I wonder how that might translate to voting this fall.
3: I feel for institutional leaders, presidents, chancellors right now. I think they are facing literally a fire hose of problems and decisions, and I do not want to add to their plates. But I also cannot move this election. It is happening, and it's significant and arguably one of the most significant elections in our recent history, and it's also now. It's happening. So I don't think that they have a choice. And that's the reality. I think it's human nature to do what's urgent and not important. We just always kick the can on what's important. It's just the way we all are. And I'm asking institutional leaders not to do that. I'm asking faculty not to do that. Faculty are also facing a lot of pressure. They are making their courses online. They're learning new technologies. They're trying to figure out how to build cohesion and learning communities and students who are physically distanced. They also face a lot of pressure. And yet I'm also asking them to ramp up their level of involvement, particularly faculty.
0: Right. And that's not even to say anything about the levels of voter suppression that we're seeing play out here. From where you sit, how do those issues figure into this picture of college students voting?
3: Well, as you can imagine, I think they're incredibly significant. However, I'd like to point out that voting in this country historically has been a mess. It's just a mess. It is inconsistent. It is confusing. Every state has their own rules. There are not enough federal standards. And as a result, one state will allow a student to walk in and vote flashing a student ID and another state will require them to have an in-state issued form of identification and some kind of notarized evidence that they reside there, at least for mail-in voting. That's one of the things on the table is to what extent do we have to notarize our forms of identification? So between confusion, extreme confusion, and unnecessary barriers, it's pretty hard not to look at the system as suppressive. Then when you combine that with what is happening on the ground in poor communities and communities of color and the difficulties of mobile populations like college students, then you see a whole other layer of inconvenience that just cannot be described as anything else but suppression.
0: Yeah. So are there things that universities can be doing to help smooth some of these waters or or help ease some of these access issues that their students might be facing?
3: Yes, there are. There are some very practical things that institutions can do. And then there are some what I might call more aspirational things that they can do. On the practical level, they can ensure that students have the identification that they need to prove their residency. Now, keep in mind that when I go to vote, I have to prove both my identity, I am who I say I am, and also my residency, I have a legal right to vote in this district. For most people, that's not all that hard because you use your driver's license, it's been issued by the state government, and it's got my address on it. And so it's not very hard for me personally to do. But a college student might be attending school far away from home or out of state and for them, they have to prove that they are who they say they are and also that they have a legal right to vote in that physical location. So one thing that campuses can do is they can provide the evidence that students need to prove their residency. And that can be done in a number of ways. They can work with local officials and say we will provide you with an enrollment list Or they can create something that the University of New Hampshire created with the Secretary of State in New Hampshire. And it's a little app. And the app allows students to just put their name in and show it and they could screenshot it for mail-in voting, and they can flash it when they are voting in person. And it just is something that comes out of the registrar's office and proves that that student is currently enrolled at that institution. My understanding is now all of the schools in New Hampshire have the ability to create that app, and it's not very hard to do. It sounds daunting, but it's not. And we can work with campuses to get them the technology, sort of the coding behind creating that app very easily. We're working with the University of New Hampshire to do it. Mm -hmm. On the more aspirational side, why not use this incredibly confusing and difficult election to fix some of the underlying election problems? So, for example, we know in five states that voting by mail works. Well, why don't we make that work in every state? There is no reason why we cannot vote by mail. These claims of voter suppression are unfounded. There is no evidence of widespread voter fraud, which might be an imposter, somebody being an imposter, somebody voting in one district and then going to the next district. It just doesn't happen. And when it's something like .00 of voters where that comes up, and even that is probably an overstatement. So it is not a problem. I want to reiterate it is not a problem, and we should not be fixing things that are not a problem. So mail in voting is a really good idea, and it's something that we could advocate for, along with some other reforms such as early voting. Early voting in person is a smart thing because then people can spread out. We need physical distancing in this election. Let's advocate for early voting. Let's advocate for same-day voting and same-day registration. That will help overcome some of these inconvenience problems. Let's advocate for enforcement of the Help Americans Vote Act, which is a federal act that says that when I go and get my driver's license, I can automatically register to vote. Let's enforce that. It's not enforced in all states and territories and the District of Columbia, So, although I think it is enforced in the District of Columbia. So those are just some of the many reforms that I think we can do. What we are asking for in a memorandum that we published with the Fair Elections Legal Networks Program, Campus Vote Project, and also with the Andrew Goodman Foundation is that presidents use their stature in the state to advocate for better voting laws, for better voting conditions. And that is something that presidents don't like to do. They don't know that that's their role, and yet they all have offices of government affairs. Put them to work. And then when they need to be visible, be visible. They also need to be visible advocates for students. They need to set a tone around elections. They need to get involved. We've done a lot of research on campuses that have unpredicted high voting rates, like crazy high voting rates. And on those campuses, the presidents are visible. They are out there. They're talking to students. Some of them teach courses. So it's time for presidents to get involved. And I apologize for the difficulty because of the circumstances, but it's actually because of the circumstances that they need to step it up.
0: Earlier this year, we did an interview with Dan Smith, a voting scholar at the University of Florida, and he has done some research on early in-person voting among college students. And not only did they vote more, but they also enjoyed the experience more from like a qualitative perspective, because just what you were saying, they could go kind of when they wanted. I think they even had pizza parties and encouraged people to come to the polls on like a Thursday night or something, as opposed to whenever they would have to try to squeeze it in between classes. So yeah, I think there is a growing, body of data out there about some of these sorts of things. But
3: yeah, so the point there is really well taken. And that is that voting is a social act. Preparing to vote is a social act. If I'm a member of the acapella group, I go to vote with my acapella group friends. It is social and Social cohesion on campus is such a critical underlying condition, not just for voting, but for even talking politics. And our research says that the most important thing for campuses to do is talk politics, to talk about policy issues, to use various structures, to have conversations about public issues. And Yet you can't talk about things that are polarizing or divisive unless you have this underlying social cohesion. So what, of course, happens in a pandemic? People are isolated. They're physically distanced from each other. And so we have to find new mechanisms to build social cohesion so that students can talk to each other and they can vote in some kind of, I feel like I'm in this with others way.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned the example in New Hampshire of the app that they worked with the Secretary of State to create. Are there other things you're seeing percolating right now about schools that are thinking about this question and maybe coming up with some innovative ways to build this social cohesion around voter registration and around voting itself?
3: Yeah. It's a little bit early to tell what campuses are going to be doing here and now under these Mm -hmm. incredibly, hopefully unique, circumstances we usually divide voting into two categories. One is the mechanics of voting. What are the barriers to voting? What are the mechanics? What do I need in the way of IDs? How am I going to physically get to the polls? How far away is the polling place? Those are the mechanics of voting. And that is largely what the memorandum to the presidents is all about. But there's a whole other side to voting, and that is, What motivates people to vote? One of the things about our data, which I don't think anybody has been able to show before our data, is that college students actually register to vote. There's all this push for students to register. Well, they do register. They register at rates commensurate with the general population, maybe even a little bit higher. It's a little hard to measure registration rates out in the general population. But what they aren't doing is they aren't following through. So in a midterm election, a very small percent, less than 50 percent, around 50 percent in 2018 and far less than that in 2014, actually turned out to vote after they had been registered. So there's some kind of gap happening here between when I register and whether I actually follow through. And that is where campuses need to put their efforts, is mm-hmm. motivating students. That then goes to the role of the president in saying this is important, in setting the tone. It goes to the role of faculty embedding political conversations in their classroom and of just making sure that there is a sense of cohesion and excitement on campus to motivate people to vote. Now, this year, it's even more important because they have to be motivated to work really hard to overcome these barriers. So that's the two sides of voting are really important, the mechanical side, but also the motivational side.
0: And so you were talking earlier about university presidents, chancellors, high-level leaders using their leverage, their clout that they have is maybe the, the better way to think about it, to help push state and local election officials to help remove some of these barriers students have to voting. And I guess I'm wondering, from... The other side of that, how receptive are these secretaries of state and county election directors and these types of folks? Are they generally open to these university leaders if and when these meetings do happen or these conversations do happen? I know there's probably some element of the political versus partisan here and universities not wanting to do some of these things because they wait. They're worried about political backlash and all of this. But thinking about the kind of government side of things, what do things look like? like from their perspective and in how do they think about their relationships with universities?
3: Yeah, I don't think I know the answer to that entirely. I will say that I've talked to some secretaries of state and some are very receptive. They want to make voting easier and they need political leverage to do that. So it might depend on the kind of state you're in. For example, are you in a state where all of these reforms have to be done at the legislative level? Or, as the Secretary of State in Connecticut was telling me, her real problem is that it's in the state constitution how voting happens in Connecticut. And as a result, she needs to get a state constitutional amendment through to ease some of the barriers to voting. That will require then a large vote by Connecticut citizens. It will probably require a ballot initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, ballot initiatives in the last few years have been highly successful in removing some of the barriers to voting. So getting involved at that level, I think would be a very good idea. I also wanna make sure everybody Understands that there are plenty of Republican secretaries of state and Republican legislators who want everybody to vote. And while it sounds very much like a partisan issue across the board, it's not always a partisan issue. The key, I think, is pitching it as a nonpartisan issue. We should all, Republicans and Democrats, and of course, independents, should all want everyone to have free and equal opportunities to participate in elections.
0: Well, uh, Nancy, we will link to all of those resources that you mentioned in the show notes. Thank you for all of your work and thank you for joining us today to talk about it.
3: Thank you, Jenna. This was really interesting and I hope people will go forth and get involved. So thanks so much for including me.
1: That was a really interesting interview. She raised a lot about some of the challenges we're facing right now, but I think also more importantly about the responsibilities of a university towards teaching about civic engagement and towards helping its students become engaged as good democratic citizens. But I think uh, you and I know, Chris, uh, that the environment on college campuses is not straightforward so simple these days, is it, on these matters?
2: Well, no, and that's true of society at large, right? I mean, the distinction that she wants to make, and which is completely reasonable to try to make between public policy and politics on the one hand, and partisanship on the other, I just think is very difficult, if not impossible, right? You want to talk about climate change? You can't get partisanship out of that. You want to talk about the status of police and police tactics and who gets arrested, who gets shot, these are impossible to talk well, about in why, a nonpartisan yeah, way.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's undoubtedly true that universities have become more politicized in the public mind, right? That there is more of a partisan divide in terms of support for higher education. We've seen it in a variety of surveys that increasingly Republicans have responded to attacks on higher education and see them in increasingly partisan terms. And COVID has made them vulnerable, right? It has made universities vulnerable, and so it probably helps to bring to the fore some of these concerns. But that's why we have tenure and academic freedom, so that professors can talk about the science of climate change and not concern themselves with the political fallout from it.
2: Here's my problem. It's not that it's not possible. But the effort to leave partisanship out of it leaves you with just this incredibly thin notion of why you should vote, why you should be civically engaged. It's a civic duty kind of argument. It's a civic participation argument instead of, hey, these are things you should care about and they're going to have impact on your future. And you should probably want to find out about these issues and make a decision. That's what politics is. It's an assessment. But
1: well, your assertion here is that colleges and universities have more than a responsibility to facilitate voting, to lobby for voting, and to encourage its students to participate politically, but rather to bring to their attention the specific issues they should be focusing on?
2: No, I guess my point is that you can't extricate the fight out of politics, and so you shouldn't try. You just can't sustain her objective of trying to keep partisanship out of it, not in our current climate right now. And if you do, you're left with just this flat and insufficiently appealing notion of politics. That's what I would say.
1: But, you know, to return to some of the primary issues, I find myself concerned about whether or not students are going to really key into this. Mm -hmm. without, it could be that the things that always went on on a college campus to get students interested and engaged really made no difference at all and were just kind of a party. But I suspect that there really was something to it. And I heard some of that in the interview as well. There is a whole social aspect to voting. There is a social aspect to becoming involved in politics. And especially for more uninformed voters, having social cues to follow is really quite important. And they're still in their dorms. I'm sure they're still having discussions, but there's much less going on on campus.
2: Well, some of it is simply like, hey, are you registered? Here's how you get registered. Click on this link. Here's what you need to know. You know, all that stuff, which is- Let me add
1: something else to this too. I was at a little get together the other day, very small, just a few people, but somebody was talking about how they were going to vote by mail. And they started to go through everything that they were going to do involving this voting by mail. They were going to go drop it off, and then they were going to, but then maybe they were going to also vote in person, and then you had to bring your ballot to make sure. It was all very complicated. I don't want to give out incorrect directions here about right. how one votes by mail or how one makes sure that they've correctly voted by mail. But my point is only that it was pretty complicated. And I would think it has to be especially complicated for somebody who's never voted before.
2: No, I couldn't agree more. And that's actually, Nancy says that precisely. She says that inconvenience equals suppression. And I think you have seen a number of efforts on the part of Republicans to make voting inconvenient for college students. And I don't say that as a, yeah, not not particularly
1: this year, but in the past with making student IDs. Uneve-
2: student not accepted, IDs, student and they ID had to is- be a certain type. And if, yeah. in Texas, if you had a hunting license, you could use that ID, but you couldn't use a college ID. And then they said, if you want to use a college ID, it has to have this kind of information on it. And if you've never voted before, those obstacles can seem pretty formidable. And so I do think that there is absolutely a role For colleges, just to say, here's what you do, and make it as easy as possible, irrespective of what side you come down on, just to get young people over those obstacles so they can figure out how to become part of the process. Because if you don't start voting early, the data shows it's harder to get you to vote later. Yes.
1: Voting is a habit. To quote our poll director, Eric Blutzer, voting is a habit, and- The earlier you start, the more likely you are to keep on voting. I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that universities can safely take on as a responsibility encouraging its students to vote without worrying which way that vote comes down. So, you know, we've been focusing on the mechanics and on the social aspect of it and what it takes to get people out to vote. But one of the things that it takes to get people out to vote is thinking that the election matters. Mm -hmm. And we should also recognize that they're not ignorant of what's going on in their lives, A lot of Americans seem to be registering this as an important
2: political moment. You have to believe that students see that as well. That's possible too. And so anybody who really claims to know exactly how this is going to play out, I'm not buying it. But anyway, we'll see. Nancy Thomas's work, her organization is if you want to know how to vote in your state, that's where you go. So, thanks to her for the interview. Thanks, you all, for listening. My name's Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. And this has been Democracy Works.
0: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
2: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.